Hi, my name is Lindsay Adams, and you are listening to Mindful as a Mother. I have been so excited to tell you that my course is finally ready. I will be launching soon, and I cannot wait for you guys to see this. The topic is coping for kids, how to help your child manage difficult emotions without the meltdown. I know that so many of you are going to love and benefit from this. So if you want to get on my waiting list to find out more information as soon as it's available, go to the link in the show notes and put your name and email in and then you can be the first to know. Okay, so you know I love KiwiCo. You know that I love spending one-on-one time with my kids. Every month, I am just in awe about how affordable it is, how well it's put together, and how much my kids love it and are engaged by it. Everything is portioned out. There's the amount of supplies that you need so you don't have 7,000 googly eyes You don't have to go to Michael's 16 times. And I I really think I did the math on this latest box. And to get the supplies for one of the activities, I would have had to spend more than I spent on my whole month for the box. So if you had any hesitation, this is your permission. Order it now. Your kids will thank you. Your relationship with your kids will thank you. Go to the show notes and click on the link and then enter your email to get 30% off your first box. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic relationship, and the information given in this podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the advice of a professional. Hey, it's Lindsay. I hope you all had an amazing week. I just a few things before we dive into today's episode. I just wanted to say thank you for all of the amazing feedback about last week's episode. I'm sorry that the sound quality was a little bit rough. I recorded most of the episode last minute from my iPhone, and you can definitely tell the sound quality difference. So thank you for hanging in there. I will probably never do that again. Okay, so a lot of you have reached out to me and said that the neurodivergent episode was super helpful to you and it helped you realize and recognize a lot of things that you didn't before and I really appreciate and love that. This week we're going to talk about neurodiversity or neurodivergence in marriages and then I was going to do a third episode about kids. I think I'm going to have to split the kids episode into ADHD and autism because I'm getting so many questions about both and I really want to give all of the topics all the attention that they deserve. So um, that's something to look forward to in two weeks. I think today's episode's going to be great. Also, if you have been on the fence about KiwiCo and you are listening to this in July of 2021, They have an amazing new promo code that I will put in the show notes. It gives you 50% off your first box. It is valid through the end of July. All right, here we go. Let's talk about neurodiversity in couples. 
So neurodiversity in couples is when one or both of the partners has um, a neurodivergent brain. This can include ADHD, autism, and all the other things that I listed in my um, episode last week. Things like Tourette's, um, dyslexia, dysgraphia, and sometimes people include bipolar 2 and schizophrenia. So if you choose to include that, totally fine. If not, that's fine too. So the reason that this is important for you if you are in a neurodiverse or divergent relationship is that those relationships have a higher divorce rate. When I was researching for this episode, I tried to find an exact number and no one has an exact number, obviously, because I'm sure there's tons of undiagnosed people walking the earth. But um, the numbers I saw were anywhere from like 70 to 80% of relationships, marriages that are neurodiverse end. Average divorce rate is like 50%. So it, it is significantly higher. And I think that the information in this podcast will be helpful if you are in one of those so that you are not in that 75 to 80%. Also, it was super helpful for me because I don't want to get a divorce. And uh, to be like pretty frank and vulnerable with you guys, like all of the problems in my marriage stem from these issues that come up. And I'll talk more about that later in a great book I read about ADHD in marriages. And it really changed my perspective on my marriage. But it has been a 10-year a struggle sometimes. And and I, always, you know, I always personalize certain things. And I'm sure Tim did too. And now we're able to look at it as like our brains are operating differently and we need to communicate differently. So I'll get on, I'll get way into that later, but it's important. And I think the action steps or the tips in this episode will be useful even if you are in friendships with someone who's neurodivergent. So like I said before, there's a large list of things that fall into the category of neurodivergent. The two I'm going to focus on specifically today are autism spectrum disorder and ADHD. That does not mean that the tips or the information will not be useful for and can not be applied to other things because they definitely can. I also think some of these tips can be applied to all relationships and would maybe just make the world a better place. So keep that in mind as well. First, I'm going to talk about autism spectrum disorder. The common thing that comes up in marriages is Asperger's, which if you don't know, is a form of high-functioning autism. Um, they like to be referred to or are commonly referred to as Aspies. They have an above-average IQ and are um, usually like pretty successful in work areas, but what they tend to lack is social skills and they struggle with empathy. They also are highly sensitive to sensory stimuli because they experience the world differently and their brain processes the world differently. So they often like remove themselves from highly stimulating situations, which can look like social isolation, being an introvert to the extreme. The important thing 
to understand. This is probably the most important point of my whole podcast, and this will help you moving forward with all the tips and the empathy portion is that if you are neurodivergent, you will always be neurodivergent. There is no changing that. You can create workarounds in your brain. You can implement skills, but it is not an an illness. It is not something being wrong with you. It is not like a personality disorder of some kind. It is a variation in how your brain brain is wired and processes information. It's a core part of who you are as a person. So I think in marriages and relationships, we often try to change our partners and that can be very difficult and trying in these situations because, well, in all marriages, you probably shouldn't try and change your partner. But things that come out in these neurodivergent marriages is the neurotypical partner is trying to change the neurodivergent partner so that they operate and process things the same way that they do. And that's not going to be effective because it's impossible. And it leaves both people feeling frustrated, alone, unheard, and bad about themselves. And so really educating yourself if one or both of you is neurodivergent, on how the brain processes information so that you're able to take a step back and not personalize some of the actions and recognize that it's how their brain is processing things. They're not meaning to be hurtful or dismissive of you and your feelings. The other caveat here is that I'm sure that there are also a lot of undiagnosed people walking around because with Asperger's, which is the on the higher functioning end of the autism spectrum, the childhood diagnosis piece typically isn't there or isn't there as often because there aren't those hallmarker things like language delay and trouble learning. The child is usually gifted or very smart and struggles socially. So keep in mind that your partner may have some of these symptoms and they may be undiagnosed and Getting a diagnosis is really up to what they feel like they want to do and what you feel like you want to happen for your marriage. Many people who have Asperger's struggle with anxiety, depression, and GI issues. And I think that's just an indicator of like the brain is processing differently and it it is really harder and a struggle to do some of the day-to-day things that people with neurotypical brains find routine or easy. A lot of times when adults are diagnosed with Asperger's, it happens when their child is being diagnosed or someone they know because they don't recognize the hallmarkers or the the things until they see someone else be diagnosed with it. The main problems that come out in marriages where autism spectrum disorder or Asperger's are present are that most of the time The couple does not realize the things that are getting in the way of their success as a couple. So for example, they may really struggle with communication or um, feeling like everyone's expectations and needs are met or, or feeling like both parties hear and understand each other. And, and they may feel like it's an intentional thing on the other person's part when really it's a difference in brain functioning like we talked about earlier. We'll talk about this more in the child episode, but one of the 
main indicators of um, Asperger's or autism spectrum disorder is struggling with communication and social cues. And those are like one of the two maybe biggest things in a marriage. So they can struggle with like language, facial expressions, but also like trying to figure out what is socially appropriate and they can appear very anxious in social settings. But John Gottman is like the father of couples in relational therapy. And he shared that people on the autism spectrum have a a weak theory of mind, which means that they have a weak ability to have a felt sense of their partner's feelings, emotions, intentions, and um, this results in the, the biggest struggles. They have a different, completely different emotional blueprint, and so they and they cannot understand their partner's blueprint either. They have a really hard time understanding or imagining what their partner is thinking or feeling. They often say and do things that appear like very insensitive, self-involved, and even cruel, and then they don't understand how that could hurt the other person's feelings. So, let me paint you a picture. A partner on the spectrum could present like a person who is self-absorbed, blunt, hyper-focused on his interests and what's important to him, highly intelligent, and completely unwilling to entertain the partner's point of view. If you are having any alarm bells go off, I am saying this sounds like a narcissist. You are right. It does sound exactly like a narcissist. And that is where difficult things with like couples therapy and treatment can come up because they do sound very similar, but they are very different. The main difference is intent. People on the spectrum are not malicious. They are not meaning to hurt the other person or be mean. People with narcissism are malicious. And I know that can be a really hard distinction sometimes. <laughs> and, and sometimes we can't tell. Also, I think the social struggle on the spectrum is pretty apparent. Whereas sometimes narcissists are able to turn it on and be very charming and outgoing in public. And this is not a capability that if someone who went on the spectrum could just like turn on and off it, social cues and things would be something that that's a struggle for them. They're going to always struggle with it. So while the intention is not malicious on the part of the person with autism or Asperger's, it can be very hurtful and it can feel malicious, which can be confusing. Like, am I married to a narcissist or am I married to someone on the spectrum? The other thing that will help you distinguish is that people on the spectrum typically don't have the skill set to be as malicious and manipulating as people with narcissism and people on the spectrum generally are focused on like fairness and social justice rather than serving just themselves all the time. Maybe one day I will do an episode on narcissism in marriages because I think it's really hard to co-parent and parent with a narcissist and so it does apply directly to motherhood. 
Okay, enough of my tangent. Here are some things you can do if you feel like your partner is on the spectrum or you know they're on the spectrum and you struggle with communication or things to just strengthen your marriage. So having an ongoing awareness or interest in what is going on with each other. If this doesn't happen naturally, you have to be structured and create the time and space for it. So this may mean sitting down every night and talking about each other's day or getting their different couple cards. I can link them in the show notes that you can use to help you have conversations about your favorite things and your views on life. This will help both partners understand each other better and feel more connected. Second tip is to really focus on positive reinforcement for both people and setting up your environment for situations that focus on that so that both the neurotypical spouse is feeling like their needs are met, but also the human brain and especially the neurodivergent brain thrives on positive reinforcement. So the more we are talking fondly to each other, talking calmly, being nice, praising each other, the more likely we are to have a positive relationship and to have the other person see our views. We're going to go back to John Gottman, who said that one of the, the cornerstones for him of like a successful couple is doing small things often and like depositing to an emotional bank account. So really creating that habit of checking in, sharing emotions, connecting with each other rather than um, letting things slide and becoming more and more disconnected. Once you are disconnected as a couple in general, but especially as a neurodivergent couple, couple, it can be really difficult to get back to that place of connection. Emotional gridlock is something that is also really common in these relationships and marriages, and that is when one partner's preferences are always ahead of the other person's. Um, Something that you can do to overcome this is go to couples therapy and talk about your unsolvable problems. When finding a couples therapist, you need to make sure you find someone who is familiar with and specializes in people who are neurodivergent and neurodiverse relationships because the typical approach in couples therapy is based off of science for the neurotypical brain. And so that's why couples therapy isn't always effective for people who are on the spectrum. The last and possibly most important tip for this section is to create shared meaning, which means having the same values, goals for life, and creating happy memories together, which are a foundation and can help you look at your relationship in an overall positive light so that when these issues in communication and empathy and emotional gridlock and rigid thinking are coming up, it's easier to focus on the positive things about your marriage or relationship and the joy that this person brings to your life, even though there are struggle. I think sometimes too, reality checking ourselves and saying that all relationships or marriages have struggles and this is ours is a really good way to like, okay, you know, every relationship has issues. This is the one I'm dealing with. And this is 
what I know that we need to do regularly to be our best selves as a couple. A lot of times we know what those things are. It's spending regular time together, checking in at night and talking about your day or watching shows together, creating happy memories together. And life just gets in the way of that. and We become emotionally distant from our partner and then we don't really know how we got there. So doing the things that you know you need to do, those need to be a priority in every single marriage, but especially in a neurodivergent marriage. All right, now let's talk ADHD. So when we think of ADHD, we typically think of the ways that having our brain be inattentive can cause problems with work, with education, with getting things done. But what we often don't think about is how this can cause struggles in relationships and marriages. Okay, let me paint you a picture. You are neurotypical and your spouse or partner has ADHD. You probably feel lonely, ignored, and unappreciated. You're tired of taking care of everything on your own and feeling like the only responsible party in your relationship. You feel like you can't rely on your partner and they never seem to follow through on what they promise you they will do. And you are forced constantly to remind them of things, demand things, and get mean or angry Or just do things yourself. And it really feels like they don't care about you. Another vulnerable moment. I just described my own role in my marriage. So even though I am neurodivergent, my struggles are not related to like getting things done. And and Tim's are quite the opposite. And so I have felt this way and it is very hard. And the, the neurodivergent partner or the ADHD partner feels like they're being constantly criticized, nagged, micromanaged. They can't do anything right. I cannot tell you how many times I have been in an argument with him and he says, why do I even try? I can't do anything right. No matter what you do, nothing seems to please your spouse or partner. You don't feel respected as an adult, so you avoid your partner saying whatever you can to get them off your back and you want them to relax a little bit. And trust that you'll get stuff done. Okay, so now that I've painted the picture, can you see how these two perspectives can be destructive in a relationship? Yeah, me too. The funny thing is, is this is not something we talk about a lot when it comes to ADHD or marriages or relationships. And so it's really important if this is you to recognize and learn about your partner and how they process information, whether you are the neurotypical person or the ADHD person. Empathy is the biggest piece in these relationships and situations because it allows you to put yourself in your partner's shoes and learn how they process things and how they perceive things. It also the biggest part in the education and empathy piece is it allows that not taking things personally. So now I'm going to use the example in my own marriage. So now that I recognize that this is a result of Tim's brain and how it processes things, it's easier to not take personally that he forgets everything. 
I used to feel like that was a slight to me or he didn't care what I was saying to him or care about the kids' schedules or plans. When, if you know Tim, he cares about nothing more than his kids. But it's really just his brain. He has no working memory. And I do need to remind him of things if that, that's something that's important to me. So now when I remind him, instead of being annoyed when I remind him, which then creates this negative experience or interaction because I'm reminding him I'm annoyed he didn't remember and it's negative feedback, which we'll get into in just a minute about how the ADHD brain processes feedback typically. Um, so now when I remind him, I'm coming to him in a more positive way and I'm leaving the interaction feeling better. He's leaving the interaction feeling better and our marriage is better and more solid. So there was a recent study that examines how dopamine plays a role in empathy. Dopamine production is typically low in ADHD, which side note is why people with ADHD are more prone to having addictive personalities because they naturally have low dopamine and so their brain loves the dopamine rush. Several other recent studies point to differences in genes that may impair the normal creation of dopamine receptors in brains that are affected by ADHD. This means that um, people with ADHD cannot absorb dopamine effectively or they cannot metabolize it appropriately. This is where empathy comes in. If you cannot empathize with your partner and empathy is harder when you have low dopamine, then you're going to struggle a lot in a marriage. Because it is very hard to see the other person's perspective and to understand where they're coming from. And I would dare to say that empathy is the basis of making a marriage work because if you are not understanding, well, empathy and communication. If you're not understanding and communicating well, then you're not going to make it through life together. It's one thing to like have a relationship in a world where there are no responsibilities, right? Like if Tim and I could do that, we would be the happiest couple in the world as I'm sure most couples would be the happiest couple in the world. Cause all you would do is like, and that's why when you're first dating, things are so much fun. You have no responsibilities with each other. You really just like do life and then you hang out and have fun. And then all of a sudden when you combine a life, then you talk about building a family, then there's responsibilities. Then you buy a house and someone's got to mow the lawn and you're trying to raise kids and distribute like work and responsibilities that way. Things just aren't fun anymore. And that's where the empathy, understanding and communication is required the most, which is why people with ADHD tend to struggle in this area. A smooth home depends on like working together and managing day-to-day chores. The symptoms associated with ADHD just naturally make this really difficult. And this is where the non-ADHD partner, or in my case, Lindsay, even though I have ADHD, can become frustrated from frequently reminding the partner, feeling like they're doing it all themselves. And then the person, and then the person who does have ADHD feels constantly nagged or criticized. Now let's talk about how the ADHD brain processes criticism. There is something called rejection sensitive dysphoria. Not everyone with ADHD has this, but a lot of people do have it. And I would bet to say that I probably have it. No, I know I have it. Let's not say probably. So what it is, is 
where someone has extreme emotional sensitivity and pain triggered by the perception that someone is rejecting or criticized. This can manifest as intense rage at the person causing the pain. I have felt this when I found out about this, which is funny because as a therapist, I was not trained on this at all in school. I've had to like learn about it on my own. But when I found out about this, I never have felt more seen in my entire life. Like I always just thought I was like an emotional loose cannon and, and I am, but now I know why. Like it's not anything I'm doing. It is literally my brain cannot handle rejection and pain, especially when it comes to relationships. So factoring that into criticizing, if we are constantly criticizing someone who feels overly sensitive when criticized because they are not getting stuff done or doing what they need to do, then it affects them very deeply and differently. And they typically have a large reaction to it leading to conflict. The ADHD brain thrives on positive feedback and positive reinforcement. I'm going to say it again. The ADHD brain thrives on positive feedback and positive reinforcement. This applies to your kids. This applies to your spouse. It applies to anyone. And I would dare to say the human brain thrives on positive feedback and positive reinforcement. So if someone takes criticism really negatively and thrives on positive feedback, Something that you can do in your marriage if one or both of you has ADHD is to really try and focus on the positive, especially when that partner does something that you know is a struggle for them. So if they recognize that the trash is overflowing and take it out, praise them like they are Santa Claus. Like make them feel so good about that. Because that praise gives their brain that dopamine rush because they're low in dopamine and it makes them want to do it again because they want the dopamine rush again. Part of the reason that partners with ADHD are so nice and helpful outside of the home, Tim, and struggle to complete things in the home is because doing things for other people and helping and getting that praise gives their brain that dopamine rush that they're missing, right? Whereas doing things at home, the dopamine rush isn't as big. So the role that I can play in this or that you can play if you are this person in your marriage is to help make that dopamine rush bigger by praising, 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 and recognizing that negative feedback and and communicating things in a negative way is very, very harmful to the process and actually makes it less likely that things get done. Personal story. I tried being really nice, asking for things to be done. I tried being really patient, aka my, my dryer was broken for like three months, two months. I really tried. And then I thought, well, maybe I just, if I yell, it'll get done. Maybe if I just like create a lot of emotional, whatever, it will get done. And sometimes that worked, but generally what happens is it just made me cry, made us fight a lot, and the stuff probably still didn't get done. Now, 
this is where the communication piece comes in because I'm not, you have to be able to communicate frustration and sadness and feeling let down when your partner doesn't do what they say they are going to do. So if you, your partner has this, I would recommend getting educated, reading a book together, doing the exercises in the books, focusing on these things so that when something comes up, the neurotypical or the partner that needs to communicate a frustration or a feeling is able to do that. Now I have some tips for communication in these marriages, but this is really the foundation and it's not necessarily just that you talk or how much you talk or the things you talk about. It is about how you are talking to each other and how you are sharing your feelings. I'm a very firm believer that we can share almost anything with someone have any conversation and be kind. We can set boundaries and be kind, which that's like the baseline of like gentle unconscious parenting. Like I can set boundaries with my kids, but also be kind and empathetic to them. This is what you need to be able to do in any marriage, but especially in a neurodivergent marriage. So some tips for clear communication and, and empathy are when you're, when it's your turn to talk, Focusing primarily on your own feelings using I statements. If you don't know what these are, therapy, Google, pretty typical, I feel this way. You don't want to focus on blaming or what your partner is doing wrong. You want to focus on where you're at and your feelings. Make requests rather than demands. So asking someone to do thing, something rather than telling them that they need to do it. Most humans respond better than the. <laughs> to these things. These are just some basic communication tips, but they're especially important. The third is to like stay respectful and accept your partner's right to their own opinion and their own process of doing things and their own thought process, even if it's different from your own. I'm real sorry if you hear rain in the background because it just started like downpouring outside. (laughs) It's really good though, because we're in a drought in Utah like a big one. So we need it. Okay. So when you're having these tough conversations with your partner, try not to blame or demean them. This is something that took me a really long time to learn in my own marriage because I kind of thought like if I was irritated, it would get things done faster. And it does. But the reaction that people typically have when you do that is, well, why do I even try Also try not to tell your partner what he or she thinks or feels or should be thinking or feeling. Don't try to correct their opinions. Just accept them for what they are and use the trouble phrases like you always or you never Um, because someone rarely always or never does something. So really try and communicate where you're at from a place of your feelings and emotions and how things make you feel rather than things being a character flaw of that person. Likely, if your partner is neurodiverse or has struggled with things, they're probably really sensitive and they know their limitations and their flaws. They don't need you to tell them to them. And I should really just take my own advice. So this episode is mostly for me, probably. Another common thing in ADHD is trouble regulating emotions. This is something that I think is often overlooked when it comes to ADHD because we tend to focus on 
the the attention piece, right? Like getting stuff done, finishing tasks, and we forget to focus on regulation of emotions. Something that I've talked about earlier and before is rejection-sensitive dysphoria, and that is where you have that strong reaction to people criticizing you. That also triggers and or ties into the emotional regulation piece. So your brain is processing things differently and probably processes things that set off intense emotions, making it hard to regulate. So focusing on having conversations in your relationship when everyone is calm and able to think logically or rationally. So if you are unregulated emotionally, not having the conversation at that moment about what's going on or what you're what you're feeling and having it at a time where everyone is calm, whether you're the neurotypical partner or you're the neurodiverse partner or you both are like really, or you're both neurotypical, like you're just in a marriage. The best thing you can do is have both of those conversations when you are calm, because when you are activated is not the time. A good trick to calm down is name it to tame it. And what this does from a neuroscience perspective is, is it helps activate your logical or thinking brain by naming what feelings you are feeling. So, and that doesn't necessarily mean doing it with your partner or having it out with your partner. It just means like to yourself saying, I am so angry because blah, blah, blah. So maybe writing it down in your notes in your phone or journaling while you're upset can help get that logical part of your brain back in action. And then when you've all calmed down, you can talk about whatever set the issue off. A lot of people say at this point, like, okay, but if we don't talk about it, then we'll never talk about it. And I totally understand that. And that's why I think a rule needs to be created that um, beforehand when everyone's calm, that if you take a break from a conflict, you come back to it within 24 hours. This doesn't mean that you just sweep things under the rug and move on. While we all would like that, it is not great right? Like you need to work through things, but you also need to calm down and take a break. All right, now I'm going to give you my book recommendations for ADHD couples. Um, my The book I read is called ADHD and Us. Other ones that have like very high review rates and are really good are The Couple's Guide to Thriving with ADHD. I have not read that one personally, but lots of people on Amazon like it. Another good one is The ADHD Effect on Marriage. And then for autism, the Autism Couples Workbook. The other half of Asperger's Syndrome and Marriage and Lasting Relationships with Asperger's Syndrome are the top rated or recommended books. I started reading them because that would be useful to, to so I could recommend them to you guys. And I just didn't get them finished or any, any of them. I started one of them finished before this podcast was coming out, but I'm working on it and I will get back to you if I hate a book or love a book. I also, so while I'm a book person, I also really just love TikTok because it's short bites of information. And so if you go on TikTok or Instagram and search 
you know, adult autism or adult ADHD or autism in couples, people will come up and you can like the algorithm will help you in that way and you will see things and learn new things. So sometimes I'll hear about a term or a concept and then I'll go back and Google it and read all about it. And that's actually really a really useful way that I've gained information in this process and in life. So I hope that this was helpful to you in some way. And if it was, please share it on your story, subscribe, rate, review, share with your friends, share with your spouse. Um, Let's just like work on all having great relationships together. Now we are going to get into mom fails. I know that it's been a hot minute since we've done any and I am so excited to share my mom fails with you recently. I have a lot of them. As usual, there has been more of me chasing kids naked around my front yard or in the backyard because it's summertime and they think that they need to be naked and I don't understand why. I also have had not one, but two children burn their hand on my curling iron in the past month, maybe even a couple weeks, I dare to say. I say don't touch the curling iron all the time, and Sam did at first, and he actually burnt himself pretty bad. He got a blister. Then a couple weeks later, I was curling my hair in the bathroom. And I told Ella Neva, don't touch the curling iron, literally turned around to grab a clip and Ella touched it. So I was feeling real good about myself then. Um, Other mom fails that were submitted. I was teaching a parenting workshop and my kid was in the other room cutting her hair. Oh, hi Paige. So (laughs) we were teaching a parenting workshop together. She messages me after and just shows me chunks of hair. Which anytime I get a text with chunks of hair, I just want to cry for that mom because we all know that the scissors just need to be like hidden forever in my house. So that's the worst. And why do kids feel like they need to do that? Like of all things, why don't you just like cut some paper up? Not the hair. Someone shared that they forgot to put a diaper on their potty training child at nap time. And there was pee everywhere. I do that frequently. So I feel you on that one. The other one I feel like is more of a mom win. But they got caught. So (laughs) this mom (laughs) froze water in like those popsicle makers. And told their kids they were popsicles. And I love that. And I'm going to try it at home. I'm not lying. Um, I'll let you know what my kids think. But her older child caught her and said, Mom, this just tastes like ice. And then the other kids caught on. But I will give that an A for effort. So I'll be back. (laughs) I'm going to end on that one. I'm going to go make some ice popsicles for my kids with no sugar in them. And I'll be back next week to talk about neurodivergence and your child, which is the episode that everyone has been waiting for. In the meantime, you can listen to last week's episode or you can get on my course wait list, right? So see you next week. If you want more of Mindful as a Mother, you can find me on Instagram at Lynn's underscore Adams LCSW. 
once again, at Linds, L-I-N-D-S underscore Adams, L-C-S-W. Thank you.